All right. So I have a request, if you're comfortable, and that's turn on your video. It's, it's much easier to give a talk to people rather than icons, but only do it if you're comfortable. Well, it's very nice to be back, sort of, at CIMC. Uh, you do have a very wonderful resource in CIMC. I miss my East Coast friends. I'm in Oakland, California. Uh, was hoping to get out there maybe in September, but well, we live in very interesting times. Let's just put it that way. So what I wanna share with you tonight is basically a chapter from a new book that I wrote. I wrote a book on dependent origination and not gonna work on the 12 links or anything like that tonight. I actually wanna look at another set of links, one that, well, maybe most people don't even think of as dependent origination. Dependent origination is not just the 12 links. The 12 links are the example par excellence, but the general principle is actually more important. And the general principle is that this arises dependent on that. If that doesn't happen, this doesn't happen. And if we generalize that, it's that everything arises dependent on other things. And this eventually becomes the emptiness that you might be familiar with from the Mahayana teachings. But we're, we're gonna stick with the Theravada. We're gonna take a look at the Honeyball Sutta, which is number 18 in the Middle Length Discourses. That's how I heard. Once the Blessed One was living at Kapalavastu. Kapalavastu was where the Buddha grew up. And so he was back visiting his hometown. He was staying at Nagroda's Grove with a large company of monks. Now at that time, after going on alms round and having eaten the midday meal, the Buddha went to the great wood for the day's abiding. So at the time of the Buddha, you would go on alms round if you were a monk or a nun and get your food for the day, come back and eat it, and then go meditate until dark. And uh, since they didn't have these evil things called chairs, I doubt they were doing 45 minutes at 45 minute walk. It's probably a six to eight hour meditation period, maybe a break or so in, in the middle or something. And the Buddha was yeah, highly recommended to go someplace where he wouldn't be disturbed. So he's gone to the great woods. And then Dandapani the Sakyan comes wandering, wandering along for exercise. And he sees the Buddha sitting under a tree. And he goes up to him and he asks, what do you teach and what is your doctrine? No, 
not really that nice to interrupt somebody in meditation. Uh, oh, well. The Buddha's answer is a bit cryptic. I teach in a way such that one does not quarrel with anyone, in a way that concepts no more underlie one who lives detached from sensual pleasures, without bewilderment, free from worry and craving. Uh, Dandapani's reaction is to stick out his tongue, shake his head, and leave. He wasn't pleased with the Buddha's answer, I don't think. Later that evening, the Buddha returns to his temporary monastery and tells the monks what has transpired. One of the monks asks the Buddha, how do you teach in that way? And how is it that concepts no longer underlie? And once again, the Buddha's reply is a bit cryptic. As for the source through which concepts and mental proliferations beset one, if nothing is found to desire or cling to, this is the end of the underlying tendencies to unwholesome states, the end of quarrels and disputes. Here these evil states cease without remainder. We should probably unpack that a bit, but before we do, I want to look at some dependent arising. What the Buddha says was that evil, unwholesome states such as quarrels and disputes arise dependent upon desire and clinging, which arises dependent upon concepts and mental proliferation. Now, interestingly enough, there's a sutta in the Sutta Nipata, another collection. It's Sutta Nipata 411, entitled Quarrels and Disputes. And in there, someone asks, how do quarrels and disputes arise? And the Buddha says, they arise when people find things endearing. And that raises the question, why do people find things endearing? Because they're desirable. Why do people find things desirable? Because of pleasant and unpleasant. Now, if you're familiar with the links of dependent origination, that might sound a bit like some of the links in the reverse order. It uses endearing rather than clinging, but all of the other maps fairly well to dependent origination. And so what the Buddha has said here is definitely a string of dependently originating processes, phenomena, that are fairly similar to the, a subset of the 12 links. But it's not quite the same. Instead of the desire, or as we're more familiar with craving, being dependent upon Vedana, it's dependent not on the pleasant and unpleasant, but it's dependent on concepts and mental proliferation. And that's why this sutta, I think, is actually important, because it addresses something that isn't found in very many other places. So what exactly does this mean? Well, after saying this, the Buddha retired to his dwelling, his kuti, his hut. 
the monks were puzzled. Who can explain the details of this? Monks decided the venerable Mahakachyana was very wise and could explain in detail what the Buddha had said in brief. And so they went to him and asked him to explain it. And he says, why did you ask the Buddha? You had him right there. He knows much better than I do, but I'll see what I can do. Mahakachana says he understands the detailed meaning as follows. For each of the six senses, he says, dependent upon the sense organ and the sense object, sense consciousness arises. The meaning of these three is contact. With contact as condition, Vedana arise, feelings. What one feels, one conceptualizes, perceives, sanya. What one conceptualizes, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one mentally proliferates. This maybe is still a bit cryptic. We could look at the dependently arising phenomena in a table. Dependent upon sense organ and sense contact, sense consciousness arises. Dependent upon the three, contact arises. Dependent on contact, Vedna. Dependent on Vedna, conceptualization. Dependent upon conceptualization, thinking. And dependent upon thinking, mental proliferation. So I think you all understand the six senses, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind as a sixth sense. And the sense objects, the six of those are sight, sound, smells, tastes, tangibles, and mind objects. Mind objects would be thoughts, emotions, uh, memories, intentions. Since consciousness is the basic interface between our physical senses and the sense objects, and the mental, knowing the sensory input. Consciousness could be defined as that which knows. For example, right now, until I say so, you're not conscious of the pressure on your left foot. I mean, when I bring it up, you're like, oh yeah, right. You're conscious immediately of it. You send your attention down there. But the pressure was there all along, but there was the, the object and the organ, but no consciousness. But then you become conscious of it. It's just like what's in your peripheral vision. Those objects were in out there all along. Your eye was working, but until I said the words peripheral vision, you weren't aware of them. So consciousness, we could say it's synonymous with awareness. It's that which knows. It's the interface between the external world and the mind. And then we have contact, which is the coming together of the sense organ and the sense object and sense consciousness. 
it takes all three of these. This isn't spelled out in the 12 links of dependent origination, but luckily we have it here. And this is really useful information for understanding how we're processing our sensory input. That's followed by Vedana. Vedana is your initial categorization of a sensory input. There are only three possibilities, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It's often translated as feelings, but I don't like that translation because in English feelings usually refers to emotions. And Vedana is not talking about emotions. It's, it's the valence of your sensory input, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Dependent on Vedana, Sanya arises. Sanya is, well, actually quite important, and it's usually translated as perception. What I much prefer translating is conceptualization. Okay, you see something, right? You see this thing, right? It's a thing, but you immediately conceptualize it as a cell phone, right? It's just there. That conceptualizing it as a cell phone is sanya. The seeing is only colored shapes. That's all your eye sees is colored shapes. And then you look it up in your database of potential objects and you say it's a cell phone. Can you see the bird and the flowers? Yeah, nod your head if you can see the bird and the flowers. Yeah, there's no bird or flowers there. They're in your mind. There's colored shapes there. You see the colored shapes and you say, oh, that shape's a bird and that, those shapes are flowers. This is Sanya. It's the naming quality, the, the conceptualizing quality. So now we have the very basics of sensory input. Sense object, sense organ, sense consciousness, come together of the three, sense contact. That's inevitably followed by a Vedana. The Vedana occurs within a tenth of a second. It's in the old brain. It's not under your control. If I had a, a blackboard and I scrape my fingers down it and I say, I'm going to keep scraping them until everybody agrees it's pleasant. Yeah there'd be nobody on the Zoom in a couple of seconds, right? You can't control and make the fingernails down the blackboard pleasant. It's just wired in like that. We could talk a lot about Vedna, but yeah, we have to save that for another time. Now, then there's the Sanya, the conceptualizing. It doesn't always happen. If you're in meditation and quite concentrated, there might be a sound. You hear the sound, but you don't bother to identify what it is. It's, it's not disturbing you. You could be doing something that is very engaging. I don't know, you're doing your artwork and you're painting whatever, and you hear a sound, you notice the sound, but you don't bother to conceptualize what it is. You're, you're completely into your 
artwork. But most of the time, we conceptualize. It's, it's a handy way for dealing with our sensory input, right? Once we've conceptualized it, then, then we have some idea of what we should do in this situation. After we've conceptualized it, what usually follows is then thinking about it. This thinking, well, it's sankara. The word sankara gets translated lots of different ways. I actually prefer Santikaro's concoctions or Tanisara Bhikkhu's fabrication. But it literally means making together. And in particular, when we're talking about sensory input, it's the thoughts and emotions and memories that follow. And these thoughts we make by putting together our concepts, right? So there's a phone, on the back there's a camera, right? And there's the front of it, and you've identified it as a phone. And you know phones have operating systems. So now you're trying to wonder, is that an Android phone or an iPhone? Okay, right? It might be a new one. Did he just get a new phone or is that an old phone? I mean, I can't, right? So we're taking all these concepts, cell phone, operating system, that comes out of your memory. Android, iPhone, those are coming out of your memory. We're making them together to make the thought. I wonder if it's an Android or an iPhone. It looks nice and shiny. Maybe it's a new one. So we're taking concepts and stringing them together to make our thoughts. And then the concepts trigger memories. And yeah, we start building all this up. And if we're not careful, all that thinking and emoting and remembering gets out of hand and we wind up with mental proliferation. Papancha. Papancha is one of my favorite Pali words. Uh, you're sitting there meditating and the next thing you know, you're, I don't know, in Hawaii or arguing with your boss or whatever. You're just sitting there. Where did all this stuff come from? Well, it's papancha, something triggered something, and then you took another thing and you put them together and you build an entire universe in your head. Part of good meditation practice is not getting lost in papancha. Because, I mean, sometimes what we're thinking about really is valuable. But when we're meditating, we're actually trying to to understand what's actually happening. And most of our papancha isn't the actually happening stuff. It's just stuff we're making up. Now, if you're familiar with the khandas, the aggregates, you might notice that we're talking about these aggregates here. The first of the aggregates is rupa, that's materiality. And so, the external sense objects, the sights, the sounds, and your sense organs, those are rupa, they're material. And then there's vedna, the valence, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Sanya, conceptualization, 
or usually called perception. And then sankara, fabrications, making together our concepts to get our thoughts, emotions, memories, etc. And then sankara, our thoughts, emotions, etc. And then finally vijnana. Now in the list of the uh, sankaras, consciousness comes last. But in talking about how sensory input works, consciousness comes up there at the beginning with the sense organ and the sense object and consciousness. And then that's followed by Vedna, Sanya, and Sankara. This insight into understanding how we interface with the world of our sensory input is very useful in exploring many aspects of the Buddhist teachings. The first one is to realize this is not a one-shot deal. You see something or hear it or whatever, and that does the Vedana, Sanya, concept, uh, thoughts and emotions, but the thoughts and emotions that arise are input to the sixth sense, your mind. And inputs to the sixth sense also generate Vedna and some more conceptualizing and some more thoughts and so forth. And it just kind of builds on that because those more thoughts and so forth, they also generate Vedna, right? You get the picture? Most of what we experience as pleasant or unpleasant is being generated in our mind. I read an article on the New Scientist website many years ago, and it said that 80% of our mental activity, 80 percent of our mental activity is generated by other mental activity. Only 20% of our mental activity is generated by the five senses. So what's going on, the pleasant and unpleasant, which is what the Vedana are, most of it, 80% of it is arising from our minds. When the Buddha said that all that he taught was dukkha and the end of dukkha, I assume you all know what dukkha is, suffering, unsatisfactoriness. My favorite translation is bummer. Okay, so bummers arise dependent on craving. That's the second noble truth, right? And the Buddha says that's all he's teaching is dukkha and the end of dukkha. But the Buddha had a bad back. He says in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, he tells his attendant Ananda, I'm like an old cart that's only held together with straps. I guess we'd say bailing wire today. The only time I get relief is when I enter into the state of the cessation of feeling and perception. He has to go into basically suspended animation to get away from the dukkha vedana of sense contact with his bad back. And yet he was free from dukkha. Well, the dukkha he was free from was the mental dukkha, right? 
If he stubbed his toe, it was still going to hurt, but he wasn't going to get upset about it. The fact that he had chronic pain in his back, he didn't get upset about it. There's a sutta. It's Samyutta 36.6. It's entitled The Dart or the Arrow. And in that sutta, the Buddha says that an unenlightened person, a worldling, a fixter, experiences an unpleasant sense contact and gets upset and beats his breast and is all put out by it. But an enlightened one experiences the same unpleasant sense contact and does not get upset or beat his breast or get all bent out of shape about it. So the difference is that our mental processing isn't dukkha mental processing if we're fully awakened. The dukkha arises dependent on craving for things to be other than they are. But for craving to happen, there has to be a sense of somebody who's going to get the things different from the way they are, right? But a fully awakened person is free from conceiving of somebody who's going to get things different from the way they are. So with no craving, no dukkha. So hopefully this understanding of how sense contacts progress from the object and the organ to consciousness, and that's contact, it's followed by Vedana, followed by Sanya, conceptualizing, followed by Sankaras, thoughts, emotions, memories, etc., which also produce Vedana, and more thoughts, and I mean, it just keeps going unless we're paying careful attention and decide to not let it run off into papancha. And this explains the arising of papancha. This explains how we get distracted, how we get lost in our thoughts and emotions, how we drive ourselves crazy. Something happens, something triggers us, and then we just run with it. Each thought is producing its own Vedna. And we're having a reaction to that thought. We're doing more concepts and more thoughts. And it's getting out of hand. And this is what was Mahakachana's explanation to what the Buddha was saying. So we can combine that little three-step dependent origination that was directly from what the Buddha said, and all these steps that are um, from Mahakachana into a very nice uh, set. And so I just stuck the whole combined thing into the chat. And so if you want to look at the chat and follow along, you can see what's going on with sense contact. Dependent upon sense organ and sense object, sense consciousness arises. Dependent upon sense organ, sense object, and sense consciousness, contact arises. Dependent upon contact, 
Vedna arises. Dependent upon Vedna, Sanya arises, or conceptualizing. Dependent upon Sanya, thinking, emoting, remembering arises. Dependent upon thinking, mental proliferation, papancha arises. Dependent upon mental proliferation, delight, welcoming, and holding arise. Dependent upon delight, welcoming, and holding, underlying unwholesome tendencies are strengthened. Dependent upon underlying unwholesome tendencies, quarrels, disputes, and other evil unwholesome states arise. Now, the cool thing about dependent origination is it's a string of necessary conditions. So the Buddha was brilliant. He wanted to deal with dukkha, but he didn't sit down to figure out why is there dukkha. He started looking for a necessary condition for the arising of dukkha. You know necessary conditions? A necessary condition for the light to be on is the light switch be on, but it's not a sufficient condition. The power plant has to be pumping out the electrons, right? And the wires have to be intact and the light bulb has to be working. You don't even have to know why the light shines. I mean, it shines because some electrons got excited and emitted photons, but you don't have to know that if all you want to do is turn off the light. All you have to do is find one of those necessary conditions and turn it off. You could blow up the power plant. Nah, I don't recommend that. You could cut the wires. No, but the light switch, that's easy to manipulate. You turn off, the light goes off. The Buddha was looking for an easily manipulatable necessary condition for dukkha, and he found it, craving. If you don't crave, no dukkha. That's the third noble truth. So here we have a bunch of necessary conditions. And Mahakachana says it's possible to stop the evil, unwholesome states from arising at any point in this chain. Some of them are, well, a little more difficult than others. Um, sometimes it's very important to not look, not listen. I, I'm sure you're all aware of yeah, there's movies that are probably not worth seeing. There are books that you really don't want to read. There are websites that uh, you don't, don't want to go there, right? So we're, we're not doing the sense contact with the problematic places. But we still got to have our senses working. That's how we navigate the environment. That's how we take care of ourselves. That's how we find something to eat, etc. So when we have our senses working, there's going to be sense contacts. And sense contact is inevitably going to generate Vedna, unless you're so concentrated that you're in suspended animation. Yeah, I don't think we have any of us are doing that right now. And then we're going to try and figure out what's going on, and it's going to be the concepts. Sometimes if we're really concentrated, there won't be the concepts. It's just the contact and the Vedna, and that's the end of it. No problem. Sometimes it's the concepts, 
And that's where we got to be careful. We want to get our mindfulness in there right after the Vedana. Oh, second establishment of mindfulness, second foundation of mindfulness. Remember that one? Vedana. This is why it's so important. Get your mindfulness in there. Don't let your conceptualization take you into a place where your thinking runs wild and you get lost in papancha. So that's the best place to be mindful, to prevent the papancha from taking you into these evil, unwholesome states such as quarrels and disputes. Sometimes though, yeah, all right, you're into the thinking. There's no problem with the thinking, at least at first. And then it starts spiraling out of control. Can you recognize, oh yeah, this is probably not useful. Let's drop it. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. You know, when the papancha gets going really good, we're often really hooked. But any place along there before we wind up with the delight, welcoming and holding, or as it's usually said, craving and clinging. Because once the craving and clinging is there, that's a setup for dukkha. And in particular, that's a setup for strengthening the underlying unwholesome tendencies, which lead to evil unwholesome states such as quarrels and disputes. So as often happens when someone explains what the Buddha says, the monks go back to the Buddha and knock on his kuti and they say, Virabhukachyana, Mahakachyana said that what you said meant this. And they, they recite the sutta basically to the Buddha. And the Buddha usually says, well, if I'd given the talk, that's exactly what I would have said. And that's what he says here. Now, this sutta gets the name Honeyball Sutta because at that point, Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, says, Venerable Sir, just as if a man exhausted by hunger and weakness came upon a honeyball. So a honeyball appears to be a cake that's made out of primarily honey, maybe some flour and some other sweet things. Whatever he would taste, he would find a sweet, delectable flavor. So too, venerable sir, any able-minded bhikkhu, whatever he might scrutinize with wisdom the meaning of this discourse on the Dhamma, would find satisfaction of confidence of mind. Venerable sir, what is the name of this discourse? Ananda, you may call this the honeyball discourse. So I hope this is helpful. We got time to do some meta. You know, it's really nice to always end on a high note. So put yourself back into your meditation posture. Put your attention on the, your breath for just a few moments and get yourself settled in.
Look into your heart and you will find a very large flower garden. A flower garden full of the most amazing varieties of flowers. A real riot of color. Now imagine that you go for a stroll through the flower garden of your heart, enjoying its beauty, its visual beauty and its olfactory beauty. Now think of someone that you really care about, someone you really like, and pick that person a nice bouquet of flowers from the garden of your heart. And then present that bouquet to them and see the joy on their face. Think of other people you're close to. Bring them to mind one by one and pick each of them a nice bouquet of flowers from the garden of your heart. Think of your acquaintances, people like your neighbors, co-workers, people you see in stores that you frequent. Bring them to mind one by one and pick each of them a bouquet of flowers from the garden of your heart. Think of someone you find difficult. Pick them a nice bouquet as well and present it to them nicely. 
Maybe there's something healing in those flowers that will help them be less difficult. Pick flowers from the garden of your heart for everyone on this Zoom call. Our little Sangha here. Flowers for each of us, from each of us. Pick flowers from the garden of your heart to give to everyone dealing with COVID. Those who are sick, those who are taking care of the sick, all the people stressed out about COVID. Flowers from your heart. Pick flowers from your heart for those who are dealing with the fires and the floods and all the other things that are happening that are full of dukkha. You might notice that the garden of your heart is quite a bit larger now than when you started. You can pick flowers for everybody on this planet. Everybody have a gift from your heart. Now put your attention back on yourself, back in your heart, and notice how much larger the flower garden is now than when you started. It's a funny thing about love. The more you give it away, the more you got. Thank you. They say one of the best merit-making things you can do is share the Dhamma. So I appreciate this opportunity. May any merit from our time together be for the benefit and liberation of all beings everywhere.